All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come now to that point in the service when we focus upon what you have revealed to us, what you have had written down for our knowledge, for our information, that we may come to learn who you are and how we are to respond to you and how we are to live as those who have been set apart to your service in Christ. Father, as we continue our study on your existence as a trinity, we pray that you might expand our our understanding and that we may realize that there is so much more to this than we ever imagined in its significance and its implications. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in our opening of Ephesians, and we are looking at Ephesians. What's going on here? There we go. We're in Ephesians 1, and in verse 3, there's a reference to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that this has brought us to understand this by looking at and examining this doctrine that is in this New Testament, explicitly in the New Testament, implicitly in the Old Testament, of the Trinity, the triunity of God, the triune existence of God. And we have looked at this in in terms of its development in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And now today I want to look at the implications of the Trinity for us. As we look at Ephesians, one of the things that has impressed itself upon me as I have been studying through the Trinity now and thinking specifically about what Paul says in Ephesians, that he starts off in this tremendous opening praise from verse 3 to 14 by dividing it into three sections, a praise for the Father, a praise for the Son, and a praise for the Holy Spirit, as we've seen uh, the last uh, few lessons. A praise for the Father in verses 3 through 6, a praise for the Son and his work of redemption in verses 7 through 12, and a praise for the Holy Spirit and his sealing us in Christ and for eternity in verses 13 and 14. But this is not the limits of the implications of the Trinity as we get into Ephesians. We're going to see that it underlies almost every major section as we work our way uh, through the Trinity, through the, through the epistle. And one of the ways it does is in this doctrine I will touch on today the implications of, of this that 
in in the Holy Spirit, we have, I mean, excuse me, in the Trinity, we have this um, understanding and answer to what to a problem posed by uh, by by philosophy, and that is this idea of the one and the many. Sometimes it's called the problem of unity and diversity, the problem of universals, and the problem of particulars, and how all that is brought together and how the Trinity answers that. Now, that seems really abstract to a lot of people. And it is, because, but it has implications that are important, because when you get down to understanding the realities of life, there's always some sort of abstraction behind it in terms of understanding uh, its, its basic underlying principles, and that will become more clear as I work our way through this. But as we do so, we'll see that when Paul talks about the unity that we have in the body of Christ and the diversity that we have in terms of each member of the body of Christ, it flows out from this understanding of the Trinity. He will talk later about submission and authority in various relationships, and it is at the core of this issue of unity and diversity that we see that there is authority in the Godhead eternally where there is no sin and there is no self-centeredness among the members or hostility towards another being in authority. And at the very core of this idea of the unity of the one and the many is this idea of authority. And we touched on that last time when I went through the doctrine of the son's submission to the father. And so this is, this is important. In the New Testament, there's a couple of different places where we see the Trinity explicitly, but it's never defined as such as a Trinity. We just see the operation of these four uh, distinct persons in the Trinity. For example, at the baptism of Jesus, in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, we read, when he had been baptized... Jesus, okay, the he and the Jesus refer to the same person. So we have the, the, the God-man on the earth in his human body. Then, it's, then we see when Jesus came up immediately from the water, behold, the heavens are open to him. And there, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. So now we have two persons. We have the Spirit of God and we have Jesus. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, and this voice is the Father because he says, this is my Son. To call him the Son implies the Father. We talked about this relationship last week that this is not a uh, just a way of talking about uh, the relationship of two persons in the Trinity is, but it is something that is an eternal designation that he is eternally designated the Son and the first person of the Trinity eternally uh, the Father. And so we are looking at the, what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. We've looked at it in terms of the Old Testament teaching that there is a plurality of God and the deity of the Messiah. Now that's important because often what you will hear in, if you go to theology classes, you take a course in theology proper at a seminary or Bible college, 
They will even go so far as to say the Trinity's not in the Old Testament. I've heard some people make that statement. It's just hinted at. I think it's much more overt than that, and we went through a number of passages that demonstrate that and a number of different ways where you do see a plurality there. Uh, And if God exists as a trinity, that triune relationship of God for all eternity is the ultimate reality of the universe, and so that is going to have implications for everything within his creation because creation will will reflect that reality in its in its makeup the new testament it becomes more overt more explicit and there's passages that still talk about the plurality of god such as the one i just mentioned in matthew 3:16 and 17 we also have the episode where where jesus appears uh, in his transfigured glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, and we hear the voice of God the Father there, as well as the baptismal uh, statement that we are to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then third, we looked at the idea of uh, the Son's submission to the Father, and that this is eternal. It has to do with their eternal relationship. But in Modern times, we have this problem with authority and submission. And I don't want to go into an extended discourse on that, but this has to do with the fact that, in, especially in Western civilization, we have rejected a Trinitarian understanding of, our, of a, all existence, a Trinitarian view of ultimate existence. And man and, and his cultures always swings back and forth on either the polarities of, of emphasizing the individual particulars, that is the diversity, the mem- and what we would say in terms of the Trinity, just the individual members, or it goes to, swings to the other end and it just emphasizes the unity. And it's very difficult for our finite corrupt minds to understand that God exists eternally as a unity and eternally as three distinct persons. And that's not a contradiction at all. It just seems that way to our finite mind, but that becomes a foundation for all, all, or to absolutely understand everything in creation. So we have this diagram. We have God existing as one person indicated by the light in the middle, The three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are not, as we'll see in a minute, not three modes of existence, but they are three distinct persons. So that uh, the Son is not the Father, the Father is, or the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons. Persons, but there's one essence. So each is equally God. So we have this unity in the Godhead, this unity of being or essence, so that everything that is said about one can be said about the other. And in in another sense, whenever you say something about the one being involved in something, the other two are also involved. That is a doctrine called perichoresis, 
which and that term is a Greek term, and that was used uh, by the by ancient theologians to explain this: that when the father does something, the son is doing it, and the same in reverse. So we have this unity, this oneness that is there. We'll come back to this in a minute. I'm just reviewing this. So we have this opening phrase in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's specifically focusing on the first person of the Trinity. He's identified as God, and he's identified as Father. This is predicated on a statement Jesus made in John where he talks about God as his God and his Father. So it is not a statement uh, that Jesus is a creature or anything less than God because that has to be compared with other things that we, other passages of Scripture. Now, in the unity of the Godhead, we see that each person in the Trinity shares equally in all of the attributes of God. Therefore, each is equally righteous. No member of the Trinity is more righteous or less righteous than any of the others. It also applies to all of his omni-characteristics. In his knowledge, each member of the Trinity is equally omniscient, neither learns. This is important. I'm laying groundwork here because as we get into the next section, next verse in verse 4, which talks about just as he chose us, and then in verse 5, talking about predestination, the other word that is not used in this, in this passage is foreknowledge. Now, we have to understand all of these things within a Trinitarian framework, and that will become clear as we get into those topics, but I'm setting the stage for you a little bit, that they're all equally omniscient. That means they all equally know all that there is to know. And that that knowledge implies not only the knowledge of what will happen, but the knowledge of what could have happened under other circumstances and if there were other choices made, and the knowledge of what might have happened. So that Jesus could make statements that uh, regarding, as he condemns Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum for their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, he says, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you saw, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. See, what that means is he knows that under other circumstances, other results would have come. So his knowledge is not restricted to just what happens. Now, the reason that's important is as we get into the next few verses, we'll have to talk about this in relation to the historic argument between either Augustine and Pelagius, which had to do with free will and sovereignty, or as it's played out in, after, in the Reformation and post-Reformation period as the issue between Calvinists and Arminians. But in Calvinism, God doesn't know something unless he has already predetermined it. So in Calvinism, God's knowledge is prior, or God's determination of what will happen is prior to his knowledge. So his knowledge is restricted to only that which he has predetermined. But that flies in the face of Scripture. And in two passages, in Romans 8.29 and also in uh, First Peter 
one, two, we see that foreknowledge precedes everything else, so that God's omniscience must include more than just what He has, what He has decreed. And so, equally, I mean, each member equally is omniscient, equally omnipresent, and equally um, omnipotent. Um, omnipresent, excuse me. So each of these come together in a distinct way in the understanding of who God is. And that, if that is your starting point for understanding creation and revelation, then it's going to have profound uh, implications. Now let's remind ourselves about, about God's attributes here. In this chart, we have his, we have ten attributes that God is sovereign, he's righteous, he's just, he's love, he's eternal life, he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, he is veracity or truth, and he is immutable. So in each of these, what we see is attributes that are equally God's, I mean, equal to each person in the Trinity. So I'm going to shift us over to this chart where you have now this essence of God is located within the triangle, which represents the person of God. And it equally belongs to Father, to Son, and to God, the Holy Spirit. We cannot emphasize what they have in union at the expense of their individual uh individual personalities. Now, one of the things we have to understand is this word person or personality. It has become common in many circles today to reduce this. I'm not sure where this came from, to reduce this to to, to uh, mind, will, and emotion. However, I got this, and I'm not sure who, the, who I got this from either, but it was an older 19th century commentary that's quoted in a number of places, this definition of personality. Personality exists where there is mind, intelligence, reason, free will, self-consciousness, self-determination, and individuality. This is a much better definition of what defines a person. A person exists where there is, and these first three all relate to mentality. He has mind. He has the ability to think and therefore he has intelligence related to knowledge and to reason, to argue, to think from one end to the other, to reason. And all of that, it exists differently in God's thinking than it does in our thinking because God's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither is his ways our ways because he's much higher than us. So there's, there's that aspect of intelligence or mentality. But then there's the also next the idea of volition. Volition means will, the exercise of will. So he has free will in the fullest sense of the term. Fullest sense of the term means that he has complete autonomy, that he is not determined by anything else. His plans, his purposes, his, his decisions are not shaped by anything else. We often will hear the term free will used of human beings, but we don't quite have free will. 
You couldn't decide when you were born. You can't decide when you die. Even if you try to commit suicide, often God in miraculous ways prevents people from dying outside of his timetable. Uh, I know of a pastor, a friend of mine, who had a lady in his church who for various reasons decided that she wanted to commit suicide. So uh, she went out to the car. She got in the garage. She turned the car on. She took some sleeping pills, and she shot herself. Her husband left work early that day, got home early, heard the car in the garage, went out, opened the garage door, and realized what had happened, called an ambulance because she, of the angle of the weapon, the bullet glanced off of her skull, and he was able to get her to the ER to pump her stomach, and she did not die from the sleeping pills. God had a plan for her life. You know, I've known of other situations where people have tried to commit suicide multiple times, and it just hasn't worked. And sometimes God finally brings them to a point of saying, okay, now... In God's permissive will, it's going to work. We don't have complete autonomy in our will. So it is not complete and total free will, not in the sense of God's free will. He is self-conscious. The, only a sentient being can have self, self-consciousness in the, in the full sense of the word. God, ha, God has self-consciousness. We have self-consciousness because we're created in God's image. When you look in the mirror, you know that it's you. When your dog looks in the mirror, he barks because he thinks it's another dog. When a bird flies toward a plate glass window and sees its reflection, he'll start to attack the bird because there's no sense of self-consciousness in those animals. God has self-consciousness. He has complete self-determination, and that goes with his volition. And he exists as individuality so that there is significance to each individual person. So that when we go back and we talk about the Trinity, each person has distinct identity. So each person is of ultimate importance. Each is equally eternal. There was never a beginning or an end. That is what it means to be God. Now, that's important because when we get into some things in a minute, we'll see that that is essential for understanding who Jesus is. The Son did not begin with with the virgin birth. He did not begin as a creature in some time in eternity past. He is eternal. Otherwise, he would not be God and as a creature, he would not be able to pay for sin. And then we have uh, the Holy Spirit, who is also equally eternal. John 5.19, we talked about this a little bit last time, that Jesus talks about his submission to the Father's will. So in John 5... 519, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Notice the similarity there. That's the unity, what the Father does, the Son does. That brings us to this idea of perichoresis. That's emphasizing the unity. And then John 638, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we see that he does have his own will, 
He's a distinct person, but he is submissive to the will of the Father. So that in eternity, you have authority is at the core of the, of the triune relationship. In John 7, 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but of him who sent me. So we see again that emphasis of his subordination to the Father, but it's not a subordination of essence. It's a subordination of, of person. Now, this became critical at a time in the early church by the early 3rd century. Okay, What was going on at that time was that was that there were had been attempts for the previous hundred and fifty years to try or, or a little more to try to explain what the Bible taught in terms of this relationship of the Trinity. Two questions came out of this: one was who was Jesus before he came, and the second question is who was Jesus when he came. The second question had to do with understanding the the union of deity and humanity in one person, in Jesus Christ. That gets resolved later. First, they had to understand this question of who was Jesus before he came. This is one of the most interesting uh, episodes uh, for me in church history is how they understood this. So I'm just going to cover it briefly under these five points, the background Second, what did Arius teach? Second, what did Athanasius understand? And fourth, the consequences, and then we'll look at the creed itself. Just briefly, the background was that in the early church, they were trying to figure out who God was and how do, in what way do the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate to each other. And one of the things I like about teaching this is usually you smoke out a lot of people who have one or two heretical ideas in their mind just because of the finite way in which we think. Modalism was the idea that that the Son was not distinct from the Father. Oh, there we go. Okay, that you have one God... And initially he appeared, for example, in the Old Testament as a father. And during the incarnate and then he appears later as the Son, and then now he appears as the Holy Spirit. One of the most obvious problems of this is it, he, he doesn't he's not all three at the same time. He's Either the father, he puts on the father mask and then he'll take off the father mask and put on the son mask and then he'll take off the son mask and put on the Holy Spirit mask. One of the problems of this is that if uh, in that scenario when Jesus prays to the father, he's basically talking to himself as opposed to talking to another person. That was one way that that was, was refuted. But another aspect of this was that this would mean that the Father was also on the cross, so that the Father suffered, not the Son suffering. That was called patripassionism, patri meaning father, passion meaning suffering, and that's how that heresy was was described in the early church. But that was their first stab at it, and it's called modalism. And often I find that's how a lot of Christians think about the Trinity. They they emphasize um, 
they're really emphasizing the unity of God so much that they don't have a full-bore sense of three distinct persons. For those who swung in the other direction and started emphasizing the distinction of the persons, they had trouble understanding the unity. So this is a problem we have swinging from one end of the spectrum to the other. And so they came up with a view that has been called adoptionism. And this is the idea that in eternity past, you have God existing as a unitarian type of God, a unitarian monotheism. There's just one God. And then at some time in human history, he is going to elevate this human Jesus to deity so that he is adopted as a son. This underlies a lot of theological liberalism, that Jesus becomes the son at his baptism. And a lot of theological liberalism argues from that. So ultimately, what do you have? You have an emphasis on a Unitarian idea. In American history, Unitarianism came in in the colonial period, and it begins to really have more of an impact later in the early 19th century And that has political implications because when you're overemphasizing the one over against the many, then that leads to wanting to emphasize statism and overemphasize government over the importance of the individuals. And there's a whole lot on that that I'm not going to get into. But if you're interested in delving into this, there is a book called The One in the Many by Rusus Rushdoon. He's post-mill and he's a reconstructionist, but he has quite thoughtful things to say about this particular particular issue. And it has an important influence on uh, how the Trinity influences political thought uh, down through the ages. So this is subordinationism. Jesus is adopted at some point in his life. That was condemned as a heresy. And so the next attempt was by by a guy named Arius, who was a deacon in a church in Alexandria in Egypt, and his stab at it was that, well, if Christ was not created at some point in time, then he's, he was created in eternity past at some time. And so he had the idea, and this is a direct phrase of his, the unbegun made the son. Now, the problem with this is that that makes the son a creature, and his opponent initially was Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria at the Council of Nicaea. But what Alexandria died shortly thereafter, and his number two guy was a guy named Athanasius who succeeded him. And Athanasius saw this very clearly, that if the Savior is a creature, a creature can't die for sin. And so this is the first and most important implication of the Trinity, is without the Trinity, you really don't have a Savior on the cross. And that's one of the major theological uh, problems. So Arius taught this, and he taught that there, there was a time when Christ was not. Now, the, Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea was called by the Emperor Constantine, because like any good emperor, you don't want to have division in your empire. You want to have peace. And so now the major institution that's come along is is Christianity. It's really grown by this time in the early 4th century, so that when Constantine, who's considered the first Christian emperor, when he became a Christian, and that's all can be debated, 
Uh, he had a battle against, uh, a final battle to secure his position as emperor at a place called Milvin Bridge, and it is said that he had a vision of the cross in the air, and he heard God say, by this sign you will conquer. And so because of that, he became a Christian. His mother was a Christian. Her name was Helena, and she's very important for a lot of things going on in the Middle East because she went there and she wanted to discover where all of the significant sites were. But right after he became the emperor, he issued an edict of, of uh uh, of toleration in about 315, 314, somewhere in there, and that legalized Christianity. Now, Christianity becomes the religion, so there's, a, there's this emphasis from the state that's elevating it. So politics is definitely involved. That's what you'll often hear from critics, is this was just, you know, Constantine sticking his fingers into the religious pie, and it all has to do with the separation of church and state, and this was all wrong. And there's an element of truth to the fact that it's political, but that's not the end of it. He wants this thing resolved because he wants peace in his kingdom. So Nicaea is located just outside of uh, where Istanbul is today. And uh, Philip, Philip Schaff, in his uh, description of Nicaea, basically calls it a nasty, dirty little place. Well, that's how it was in the 19th century. It's probably different now. But this was a, a, a major location uh, just outside the capital for what became the eastern part of the uh, of the Roman Empire. So you had um, uh, 318 bi- bishops come together and church leaders come together to debate this and uh, this issue. And what we see is in a lot of issues, even today in politics, you had about 10 or 15 who were on the side of Arius. And on the side of Arius, they described the relationship of Jesus to the Father as that he was different. He was of different substance. What they meant by substance is the, is being or essence. And so it was different. It was heteros. You know that word because we talk about heterosexuals. It's a different kind. So Jesus isn't of the same being as the Father. He's a different being. He's heteros. And then on the other side, you had about 10 or 15 who understood the issue from Alexander and Athanasius' perspective, and they said that he has the same essence, homoousios, the same essence. He's equally, totally God. And then then there's going to be those who want to compromise, and so they want to call it similar essence, homoousios. And what you have is about... 10 or 15 on one side, 10 or 15 on the other side, and the rest of them just really don't have a clue, and they can't think very critically, and they can't think perceptively. And it, you know, you can put that on almost any political issue of the day, is you've got about 10% that know something on one side, 10% on the other, and the rest are just going to be manipulated by whoever's in control and usually don't have a clue as to what's going on. And that's what happens at Nicaea. And at the end, they go with Alexandria, Alexander and Athanasius, and they write this creed. Now, let me walk you through this, because this creed is often recited. We did not recite it this morning. I wanted to wait until we went through this. But it's often recited in liturgical churches on communion. They'll recite the Apostles' Creed maybe every other Sunday, but they recite this creed on communion because it emphasizes the person of Christ. 
First paragraph, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. That runs counter to modern science. It is a clear statement, if you understand them, of creation. God is the creator God. Everything else is created by him and is different from him. Then they began to describe this is the first clear statement we get on the person of Christ in the early church. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. He's not he, not created. He is begotten. They use that term in a special sense to describe this relationship of Son to the Father. One Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all worlds. Not, see, he's not created or born. He's begotten. He is God of God. That means he's full deity. These, all these phrases here describe the fact that he is of one essence. God of God, light of light. And then what you read in the antiquated English, and I've updated the translation, is very God of very God. What that means is true God of true God. He is complete, undiminished deity. He is begotten and not made. That's where they define that. Made is how humans procreate and make a child. He is not made. They distinguish begottenness so that it describes an eternal relationship where the Son is eternal and the Father is eternal and the Son is eternally begotten. Being of one essence, usios. So when we use that term homo usios, usios is being or essence, homo is the same. He is of the same essence. Therefore, he has to be eternal because he has to be God. He has to be able to pay for sin. Uh, being of one essence with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. So they have the pre-incarnate Christ who's in heaven. He comes down from heaven during the incarnation of the Holy Spirit and Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with Glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. All of that goes directly to the Nicene Creed. Now, there's a battle that occurs after this, and that is that Constantine dies a couple of years later, and his son ascends the throne, but he's under the influence of the Arians. And because he's under the influence of the Arians, he ends up excommunicating or kicking out Athanasius. So Athanasius goes on the first of five exiles, so what you will hear from people like Shirley MacLaine and many others who have made these statements about Nicaea that they just impose this stuff on the church, that's not true. That's, far, that's historically wrong. It's what happens is that as politics got involved, they sought to overturn what happened at Nicaea. And so you have these battles that are all messed up because the politicians are wanting to secure some kind of unity in the state. But by the time you get to about 575 to, uh, I mean, 375 to 380, most of that in-between crowd, the 80% that didn't really understand the issues at Nicaea, has seen the outworking of the consequences of Aryan theology 
and they've rejected it. So when they come together at the Council of Constantinople in 381, they get it right, but they add more to the statement on the Holy Spirit. And they reaffirm it. And this comes from the church. It comes from the theologians. It doesn't come from some sort of political imposition on it because that gets, that finally gets taken care of. And so they conclude the statement. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, and often this is Catholic. That's the old English word for universal, so I've updated this so we avoid confusion there. I believe one holy, universal, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism because of the forgiveness of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. In the early church, these basic creeds are recited over and over again. A lot of people weren't literate. And I, I wonder, I know we're supposed to have everybody who becomes a member of the church read our doctrinal statement, but sometimes people don't understand all the implications and nuances of a doctrinal statement. And this is important and has been an important part of worship historically to recite the creeds in order to remind people the basics of what they believe. Now, the problem is, is when you have ritual without education, it becomes meaningless. And so you go, you, and I've been to many churches like this, probably some of you grew up in churches like this, where you just recite the creeds and nobody tells you what they mean. It, so it becomes meaningless. And, and I'm trying to avoid that as we do this on occasion, like on when we do the Lord's table, to recite this, because this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, the unity of the faith. Now, that's another implication that we'll see of the Trinity. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the fact that there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and one body. That's the unity concept. And then he immediately transitions from that to talk about to each one in verse 7, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's the diversity. So within the body of Christ, we're going to be coming back and looking at this unity and diversity as it's manifest in the body of Christ. But it doesn't stop there because in Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to talk about, uh, he's going to talk about personal relationships. And in personal relationships, there's also this understanding of unity and diversity. And in any society, because in the, in, in the Trinity, you have a social group. It's made of three persons eternally. There's an eternal society there, and there's authority. And so when Paul talks about social issues, at the core is authority, and he says, first of all, submit to one another. What's that? That's unity. Then he says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, honor your parents. Uh, Slaves, obey your your masters. That's the diversity. Okay, so underlying so much of Ephesians is this understanding of unity and diversity. But one of the important things to understand is what I tried to demonstrate here. We've got the love of God. Now, in order to say, to talk about love or to make a statement about love, you have the phrase, I love you. The subject of that sentence is I. 
The object is you. That means that to have love, there has to be a minimum of two persons, the subject and the object. Now, you look at various religions, and they either overload on the diversity side, and they have many, many gods, or they overload on the oneness idea, and they have only one god. You have Unitarianism in Islam, one and only one God. Modern Judaism has a Unitarian monotheism, and Unitarian Christianity has a Unitarian monotheism. But there's a problem with that, and that is if you have God, if you want to claim that God is love, you can't have a Unitarian God because there's only a subject, there's no object. And if God is love in that scenario, then he must create, he is determined to create, it is necessary for him to create so that he has an object of love, which makes him dependent on his creation. So you have one of two problems. Either he becomes to, to, totally dependent on his creation so that he can be love if he is love, which means he's less than God because he's dependent on his creatures, or he's really not love. That's what you have in Islam. Because in Islam, it never talks about Allah being God of love. He'll talk here and there about merciful, and he'll talk here and there about he forgives, but there's no eternal love in Allah, which is why you only have tyranny. When you break down the one and the many so that you emphasize the one over against the many, you end up with some kind of a tyranny. And that's played out in marriage, and it's played out in government, and it's played out in everything they do. If you overemphasize the many instead of the one, you end up in some kind of anarchy because each individual becomes self-governing, and that goes to antinomianism. And we're seeing that play out in Western civilization today as they reject the unity, uh, uh, that there's any real unity. They're overemphasizing all the particulars. There are a lot of implications here. I'm just giving you um, sort of the thumbnail uh, perspective on this, and it plays out in marriage. The marriage union, the two shall become one flesh. They're not just two individuals. There is a unity there. But when you overemphasize the unity and you don't have a respect for the individuals, then you end up with some sort of totalitarianism within the marriage, which often happens. And it's happened and it's wrong. And that's when a husband, you know, I'm totally in charge and you're not, and it reduces the wife to some second, third, or fourth class uh, individual. And that happens in Islam. What has happened today in America with the rise of, of feminism is that women are over-asserting their individuality within the marriage, and the result is there's no union. And what you see happen there is that you have people who come together in a marriage and and the best illustration is you have two people in two cars, and they seem to be doing great because both cars are headed down the same highway at 100 miles an hour, but they're not both in the same car. There's no unity. 
And this makes it real easy to come up with rationales for divorce down the way because they've never really become, the two haven't become one flesh. There's no unity. It's just an artificially appearing unity, but you have two individuals that are so assertive of their own individuality that they never come together in, in this one unity. So all of these social problems that we have are problems related to authority and submission, and it's because we've lost the integration of it and a self-conscious development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, we're out of time. We'll come back and we'll develop this as we go through Ephesians, but we need to celebrate a little bit about Christmas and how God has blessed us and provided for us so much with our uh, Christmas meal. For those who are visitors, you're more than welcome to join us uh, as we have the meals and the ladies have that ready to go. So uh, let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together to think some deep thoughts. Sometimes uh, we're, we never quite slow down enough to really reflect upon the profundities of your existence as a God who is one yet exists in three persons, one in essence, and the implications of that for our daily life and our daily thinking and our respect for individuals our and our desire to be uh, one in marriage. All of these are involved uh, by just thinking and developing out what it means uh, to have a triune God and how that eternal reality should affect our individual existence. Father, above all things, we are thankful for our salvation, that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And if there's anyone listening today, it's not about the abstract doctrines or other doctrines of Scripture. This is foundational. God loved us in such a way that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, to pay our penalty, to be our substitute, and that we appropriate that when we trust in him. His work is then applied to us, and we are set free from sin, we're forgiven, we're justified, and we are made new creatures. We're made spiritually alive in him. And, Father, we pray that anyone listening will come to understand that and that this will be made very clear to them by God the Holy Spirit. Jesus died for you. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. And, Father, we pray now that um, for us as we come together and rejoice, celebrated our Thanksgiving Christmas meal, that we will have a great time of, of enjoying fellowship with one another because of our fellowship with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.